Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Got a great guest on today, little unique story, and, and that's what was fun to bring on Eric, um, because him and I met about four or five years ago and stayed in touch throughout the years. And um, when this opportunity came up, I uh, wanted to have him on here and, and tell his story. Um, so my guest is Eric Fulmer. Last name is spelled F-U-L-M-E-R. And he's the VP of Operations and Strategic Growth at Capture Integration. Um, works specifically for a product called ShopFlow that they have. So the website is shopflow.com. I won't read a long-winded bio here because um, he talks a lot about, about a lot of his story, obviously, on the podcast. But he's really been a pioneer around digital photography and digital asset workflow. Um, in layman's terms, right, think of all the top brands in the world. They have thousands and hundreds of thousands of photos and apparel images and, and you name it, product images, those type of things. How do they manage that process um, from start to finish? And this was a problem that Eric saw throughout uh, some different companies he was at over the years and really wanted to solve that problem. Uh, so when he approached Capture Integration with this idea, they welcomed him with open arms and said, hey, come on in and, and help us build this product out. So really neat story. Um, it, it's just a different take on the whole just get started you know, mindset. doesn't matter you know, if you start the business or you come into a business or, again, you're doing something else. It's the fact that you've taken those steps to solve problems that you see in the world and things that are important to you and make you fulfilled in life. So that's what Eric's doing. I'm really excited for you guys to listen through this story because it's really cool. So without further ado... Let's jump into my chat today with Eric Fulmer. Let's get it started. Hey, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. You bet. Really, really excited to speak, Brian, and get caught up a little bit and uh, you know talk about where we're headed. Yeah, I know it's been a, a little while, and actually, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later from a networking side because I think that's always interesting. Um, I want to start out if it's okay with you, and and maybe this will be a good kind of. Hey, where we're at today, and then we'll jump in the DeLorean. I want to take uh, take a big step back, but talk to everyone and just explain, just a, maybe in short, um, about kind of your role today. You know, VP Operations, Strategic Growth at, at Capture Integration. What what are you doing today? What can what are people expecting if when they see that title and, and what the company's doing? Where, where do you come in there? Yeah, and, and the title's probably a little bit out of date, but um, I joined Capture Integration four years ago. Um, to start up a software business inside of a company that was pretty well established in uh, high-end digital photography as a reseller type model. So Capture Integration was at the time about 12 years old and it um, was a boutique kind of, um, again, kind of reseller type of model where they deal with other people's equipment and try to add value to it. Um, you know, pre-sale knowledge, training, support, et cetera, around, in this case, some fairly high-end digital photography equipment. I came on board because I essentially pitched the owner of the company on diversifying the business into software as a service and developing something new that had not been at all within the company's area of expertise or any of their history. So it's a weird sort of startup within another company. Again, we're not talking about a large company here. We're talking about a company with less than 20 employees to begin with. But I, um, I came on board to, to essentially build a team. So what I, do, what I did was spend the last four years, it's actually almost the day, I think my, my start date is tomorrow or the next day, four years ago in 2015, was take two of us in the, in the early stages 
try to build a proof of concept, try to create an MVP, try to validate the market, and then go out and, and hopefully scale. And that's what the last four years have been about. That's awesome. I appreciate that overview to start. And I want to get back to that. And we'll kind of, like I said, we'll take a step back to start because I'm always intrigued just by, you know, everyone has such different paths in terms of how they get to different things, right? They're doing their life. And it was interesting. And, and again, you're going to fact check me on some of this stuff but some of the research I did. I want to start back the uh, going back to Pennsylvania College of Art and Design, if we could. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because I'm intrigued, obviously, with that, that could mean a lot of things. What did you, one, why did you go there? And what were some of the things that you were passionate about back in that day? Was it photography? Was it different stuff around graphic design? Like, where, where was your kind of heart at in that time? Uh, it is it is kind of a funny story. It's interesting that we take, take me back there. So I was, in high school, I fancied myself the the rebel um, but I really, I really was just kind of a smart aleck uh, kid that that probably you know thought he knew more than he did, right? And annoyed several of my teachers in um, you know trying to trying to prove that I you know what I what I knew, right, or what they didn't know. And I came out of of high school without a clear direction in terms of all my friends. I, I was at, I went to a, a high school called Lancaster Catholic High School, uh, so a private religious high school, and all my friends went to college, a hundred percent. I was I was the guy saying, why would I go to college if I don't know what I want to do? And I don't I'm not clear on why, frankly, I'd make my parents spend all that money to send me to college. So I felt it would be a disservice to just jump directly into college if I didn't have a direction. And so I spent about a year working, trying to come up with a direction, ended up at Pennsylvania College of Art and Design, which at the time was called Pennsylvania School of Art and Design it was before they were accredited, actually. Um, because I had always had an interest in art and, and I had a drawing skill. I was the, when I was in elementary and middle school, I was the kid that could draw, right? I had a, a fair natural talent for it. Ultimately, I sort of felt like I need to go do something. So I went to art school while I was you know, waiting tables at a restaurant. And um, the, what I found out immediately, I, I literally went one semester. So it's on my LinkedIn that I went there because I did attend. I made it through one semester. And the reason that it was such a short stint was because I looked around and realized that these people here that I was surrounded by in that school had two things that I didn't. They actually had a lot more raw talent than I did for, for art in, in most cases. And second, and more importantly, they really cared about it. They were really driven. They really wanted to do it. They had a passion for it. And I just, I realized this is not my journey. And again, why am I going to go through the sort of motions if this is not what, what, where my, sort of where my heart is? Um, and again, my, I come from blue collar background. My parents, my mom worked for a printing company. My dad was a house painter. Um, whatever money they were putting into my education, I was very conscious of, is this a good investment on their part on my behalf? And so I ended up leaving after a semester because I, I always liked technology. And what essentially happened was I kind of got, went out and worked in the technology world and, you know, long story short, another 25 years of, of technology. But if you, if you're specifically talking about that experience, what I, I think is valuable today. And again, that was in 19, what, 80, that was 1990 ish. If you think about today, what you're hearing a lot about is, is the value of education you know, is that a good return on investment for everyone? Is that the right path for everyone? And I'm, I'm a good example, I think, of someone that tried to not just go along for the ride, but to really, to really think about what I wanted and, and basically to not participate 
just because it seemed like that was the checkbox I needed to check. And I, by the way, never did get my undergraduate degree. My children are horrified today that their dad doesn't have a college degree. I managed to sort of, you know, get through and be successful, mostly because I got into sales and marketing, where to be blunt, 20 years ago in sales and marketing, if you can make the numbers, they probably didn't care that much if you had an undergraduate degree. But I also recognize, looking back at my career, that um, it would have been easier to do different things than I did potentially by having that degree. So that's my little well, art school story. No, I mean, and, and that's interesting. And actually, there's a couple of things there that you know we'll unpack. One is, I think a lot, you know, I was in the same boat. I mean, I went to college to, you know, be a golf professional, you know, PJ, you know, I was a PJ professional in a past life. And um, so I went to college for that. But the only reason I did that, I think, because I love golf and I didn't really know if I wanted to do anything else. So in your same kind of shoes is like, it's not like, all right, I'm going to go be a lawyer and I'm going to college and that's what I'm going to do the path. I think a lot of folks have that ultimately challenge of they don't know what they want to do. And, and that's where I think, you know, you just mentioned it. I think where the disconnect is from an education is people go to college and, and that's figure that out. But at the end of the day, how many people, I don't want to say waste, because I think you get a lot of experience, but four years later, you know, or even a couple of years after that, they're doing something totally different than what their degree's about. And would they have better served, you know, almost specializing, I guess, um, to your point, maybe, because I always talk with, you know, I'm in sales and I always talk with it from a sales standpoint, like, you know, if you're 18, 19, 20, if you went and actually worked at a company and learned sales, is that more valuable than going to a couple of years of college? You're making money versus, you know, paying for education, right? You're getting education a different way. I don't know. That's a yeah, tangent, but I mean, but. it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. Obviously, we're 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 not going to solve today, but I think to your, to your point, what's interesting to me is I didn't know what I wanted. I was one of those people that had a variety of interests, which I think a lot of people do. You come out of high school, you're you're you feel like you're okay at this, you're a little better at that. I might not be as good at this, but I think it's interesting. How do you make a decision? You know, four years of undergraduate historically is about a liberal arts type of education that basically teaches you how to learn, right? And teaches you how to how to study and teaches you how to be responsible where your mom's not sitting there over your shoulder every day. There's a lot of value, I think, in that. For myself, I really struggled with, is that four years a good investment for me? But I, I think the most important thing is for every individual to really take to heart that conversation. And again, not just check the box, because that's the expectation. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the early year, because you did talk about, you know, you were in sales and, and I think some marketing and stuff, right? Is uh, how did those early years, because I'm thinking that's back, did you say about 20 years ago that was probably? Yeah, I've been in, I've been in kind of business since it was really like 1990. Um, so what is that? Oh my gosh, I don't know, 28 years um, that I've been in some form of, of, of sales and marketing related work. What were those early days? Because obviously being sales now, you have all these tools everyone has, and obviously things are a lot different. What was it like back then? Were there, were there rotary phones? Were you using yellow pages? Like what was the what was the early days of sales? I'm just curious, to, especially uh, the youngins funny. that are listening. Oh, wow. You know, like, I get to be the old man. Listen, when I, I walked uphill both ways in the snow, um, yeah, it's it was um, – it was a very different era to today to have the kind of CRM tools that we have today to have to have a tool like LinkedIn. I mean, honestly, I, you know, if you if you didn't grow up in an era before LinkedIn, you cannot imagine the ability to almost LinkedIn search anyone um, in in least, let's say, the sales and marketing side of the world, because obviously not everybody's on it. But 
almost anyone that you might bump into in a business to business type of environment. Like I've, I've been B2B, by the way, this, this sort of whole time. Um, having a tool like LinkedIn, it's, it's phenomenally incredible to, to just be able to find somebody and, and know that you can connect with them. And of course, the, the challenge always was in those days, first of all, you had to build a database that was hard enough, but maintaining a database based on people, of course, coming and going and who's really there. The LinkedIn thread that I can follow you, Brian, you and I connected when you and I were each at different companies. We've probably each been at one or two or three companies in between. We've stayed connected because that LinkedIn connection is permeable or, or um, you know, continues beyond, um, uh, you know, beyond what, what our particular email is at that company or our phone number. And it was crazy back then trying to build and maintain a database, trying to reach people. I will say that people did generally pick up their phone then because there wasn't email everywhere. People didn't really communicate as primarily through email. So the way most people you know, communicated at, at work was they would sit by their desk and they would get a phone call and they would pick it up and they would talk. So you could you know, work kind of the telemarketing, you know, saw a warm cold calling plan. But yeah, it, it really was another era. Um, and, and it's just the tool sets we have are so amazing today that it's hard to compare. It, it's kind of night and day. I was also interested to, to find out. I'm curious if this was just luck or it just it was because a lot of the companies you were at, it kind of goes back to that creative side that you said you had, right? Or in photography. I mean, you were at Fujifilm and then you went to, you know, at Creative Labs and Mac Group. And I'm kind of going through the LinkedIn list, yeah. right? Of like at some of these different companies that were ultimately in that kind of realm, like working with um, around the photography and digital asset management, all that stuff. Was that right. just, was that like strategic in your approach or did it kind of just work out like that? It, it was, it was more, I would say it was more tactical in the sense that um, I fell a little bit into digital photography in the early days, because if you, to, to kind of finish our story, when I left art school, um, I, again, I just, I just felt I couldn't, you know, with conscience sort of continue to, to burn resources on art school when I was like, I'm not really going to be an artist, but I love the creative process. Basically, I loved working with creative people, right? So I, I went to um, a little company called Main Street Software that was, you know, my hometown. Um, they were in Landisville, PA. I was in Lancaster, PA. So they were right up the road. Learned a little bit about computers because, again, I had an interest in technology. I, I clearly always was interested in technology and, and how computers were, were changing things. I had my first computer when I was 15 um, and it was Atari ST, which was a knockoff of the Mac and had a, an interface called Gem that was very similar to the, to the Mac OS. And it was, it was revolutionary for me to see, you know, mouse and icons and all that was, it just blew my mind, right? So I knew technology was interesting. I went to a little technology integrator that was building computers up the road that led me to a job at a company called Cardinal Technologies, which was in Lancaster, my hometown. And Cardinal had a relationship with Fuji, and Cardinal was trying to distribute very, very early digital cameras. And when I say early, I'm talking 640 by 480 resolution, $10,000 for the camera. The memory card was about $3,000, and this was, this was all prior to PCMCIA, PC card, any of those technologies were not standardized. So it was a proprietary memory card that needed a battery to keep it live. Uh, and if the battery died, all the, the data would die off of it. That was another three grand. A SCSI card reader was, was three or four grand. 
Um, that I kind of ran into that by chance because I went to work for Cardinal and they had that relationship. Ultimately, that led me to go work for Fuji. But I think to your to your question about the sort of digital photography thing, it was interesting. It was kind of cool. It was technology plus art, right? And that combination is really the story. Today, what I do today, 25 years later, is I'm still solving for problems within the photography space in a very specific niche, but there is an arc to it. So it can look back now and say, yes, it was strategic, but it really was more about um, those were, it was fun. It was cool. And it was a mix of two things that I was really interested in. I'm just curious uh, from a standpoint of what's the, um, cause obviously you mentioned that the 640 by what 360, what, what's like an iPhone today. If you take a picture, do you know what that is? Is that like right. 3000 okay. by what? I don't know. Right. What the... So they, they use megapixels today, right? So okay. your cameras <laughs> are a three megapixel or a 10 megapixel. I don't even know, honestly, what the, what the new 11 is. It's something insane. But if you what 640 by 480 is, is when you multiply that out, that's a half of a megapixel was the resolution. So that's one half of one megapixel uh, for $10,000. There was just a big news that Fuji, the same company I worked for about a year ago, announced a 100 megapixel camera for the same, approximately the same $10,000 price as the camera I was selling in 1995. So when you look at that arc, 25 years, we went from a half megapixel at 10,000 to a hundred megapixel at 10,000, just to give you a, a, a little bit of that scale. That's, that's insane. Um, so obviously talking about, and we'll get into this and kind of you pitching, you know, the company and saying, Hey, I got this, you know, this idea and stuff had from like an entrepreneurship kind of standpoint, had that been something you've always thought about, you know, in the past, or that, that just kind of come up out of nowhere of like, Hey, I'm going to, I kind of want to do this thing. Tell me a little about the, the genesis of that. Yeah, it's, it is a great story. I think, especially that I, by the time I became a, a quote unquote entrepreneur, I was 45 years old. It was part, partly because I, I was not planning to be an entrepreneur. I was not all through my career saying, you know what? I'm just going to quit this job and start my own company. And, and I think part of it was the era. You know, this was before 25-year-olds were, you know, were out becoming billionaires or 20-year-olds, right, uh, building companies from nothing. Before the era of the web, before the era of um, software as a service, before the era, the, you know, the last, say, 15 years, most people didn't just, you know, literally go out and start a company unless they were starting a company that was sort of in their space, meaning, you know, hey, I used to work for an accounting firm. I'm going to go off and start my own accounting firm. You know, I work for a law firm. I'm going to I'm going to stand up and do my own law firm, whatever that might be. I have a good friend in architecture that you, you do your time, you do your due diligence, you learn from other architects and eventually you hang out your shingle. Right. And you go off and, and you know, get certified and become an architect. That's the kind of path that it was. I never was was like, hey, I got to go create my own company. I want to run my own company. It came about. It came about to be an entrepreneur only because I got addicted to a market problem that clearly was not being solved. Clearly, there was a, a lot of pain around it, and it was like a mission. I, I just was like, I've got to do this. Like no one's doing this. This has to get done. The entrepreneur part was how we ended up getting there. So it was not the destination, it was the means, you know, to, to do what we had to do. And of course, I didn't even start a company. I built a team within another company in part because, again, I really wasn't setting out to build a company. 
I just wanted to go solve this problem. So, you know, it's a different path perhaps than today. Like you, you know, 20 year old kids everywhere. Like I got to start a company. I got to start a company. Hey, I'm already 30. And I didn't start a company yet. Like it, that just never was my mindset. What was the problem you were trying to solve? Yeah. So let's, let's talk about it. So it, it you know, the photography world, right. Um, has many niches. So for, for, for many people, of course, are familiar with some of them. Like if I, if I'm getting married, I hire a, what's called a wedding and portrait photographer, right? And, and wedding and portrait tend to be mixed where I shoot weddings on the weekends and I go shoot, you know, school portraits or, or family portraits during the week. That's kind of a niche, right? There's niches around food photography. When you see the cover of a magazine, it's gorgeous food. There's people that just do food photography, people that just do architectural photography, et cetera, et cetera, right? From a professional perspective. The niche that, that we're serving is high volume photography for brands to serve their e-commerce um, as well as their other channels. But e-commerce is really the kind of main one today. So if you think about uh, Gap Inc., for example, is one of our clients, right? They have multiple brands, Banana Republic, Athleta, Gap, Old Navy, that um, produce thousands and thousands of garments, you know, different colors of the same shirt, et cetera. And historically, in the old days, again, the old days being 15 years ago, your photography of that would be you would shoot like 1% of your of your product mix and you put it in a catalog, right? Or, you know, you put it on a store sign or something. You didn't have to shoot a lot of photography to sell a ton of, of clothing. Today, as you know, if you're going to sell something, you're going to put it online, not only on your own site if you're Gap, but also your partners, meaning, you know, you may sell through a Macy's or, or you know, department stores or other partners or whole, what are called wholesale partners, and you need to get content out there. And of course, you want that content to be in social media and you want it to be in other places as well. So that what's turned in the last decade is you basically have to shoot photography for every single product you sell, whether you're an apparel you know, company like, like a Gap, whether you're Williams-Sonoma, whether you're REI, whoever you are, retail or whatever. You're going to shoot photography for all that. And it's not just one image, right? You've been on plenty of sites. It's front, back, side. It's detail. It's, you know, a lifestyle shot. Maybe there's a video. So that particular niche, high volume brand driven, you might call it photography, had a problem. And the problem was e-commerce showed up and said, scale this thing up immediately. Because if we own a product in our warehouse, that's a red shirt, but that red shirt is not on our site. We basically can't sell it. So essentially, it's lost revenue. And it created this massive push to be able to scale that production in a way that had never happened before. And that's the niche that we serve with this tool we call ShopFlow that we've built over the last four years. Yeah, and, and the way you explain that, I have to imagine, yeah, the, just the amount of volume that goes into that. Because, yeah, I mean, you go on Amazon or anything else, like, yeah, you, it's like, oh, there's 20 different colors. I want to see every different angle of every different color of every different shirt. Right. Um, or Correct. product or whatever. It might it's be. insane. Yeah. Now, now imagine not just the photography problem, but there's multiple problems. So as you dig into this sort of weird niche, like so many weird niches, right, the further you go into it, the the more layers of the onion you peel back. So first of all to shoot that red shirt you have to have what's called a sample right which is i need an actual red shirt to shoot because i want to make sure it's accurate to the color I, you in theory could argue like go have a photoshop person you know some, some retoucher make a red shirt but you want that red shirt to be accurate because when they order it online and it comes to their house right they want to make sure the red is the red right so you you really need a red shirt to shoot it ideally so now we're chasing the physical samples that have to be obtained 
that physically have to be on a set to shoot. Then we're also saying, I need to put a model in that shirt. The model has to fit that shirt. There's certain rights associated with models where if I hire a model, I can't, I can't use that image for more than two years from when I shot it or some other kind of arrangement you make with that model's agency. Again, I'm just beginning to touch on, there are many, many facets to this that at scale become you know, maddening, right? And all this was done through spreadsheets, by the way. Historically, this is, a, this is just giant, historically it was an Excel sheet, right? Over the last five years, it's all moved to Google Sheets or Smartsheets or something. But we're talking 200 column spreadsheets with 18 people in that Google Sheet every day trying to manage the, the crazy amount of data. And, you know, did we do this? Did we not do it? Is this in retouching? Has it not been retouched? Again, you can imagine all the permutations, but it's a very complex kind of problem, but it's hitting everybody at the same time across all of these markets, anybody that's trying to sell anything in that retail space. So it's created a, a lot of need, but it's a funny, weird thing because you would say, well, gosh, Eric, why isn't Adobe doing this? Or why isn't somebody else doing this? It's, it's, a, it's a big niche, but it's still, it's still a small niche from the comparison of how many people need to, you know, have a, you know, to buy a cell phone, right? Um, that's, that's a much, a huge market. Consumer markets are huge. This is a business to business market and it's only for people that have this high volume studio workflow. So it's, it's just kind of one of those weird niches that it's right in front of you. Like you probably never thought much about it, Brian. And maybe you did a little bit when you were at InMotion now or something like that because you served that market. But most people just never think about it. Of course, those images get there some magic way. But it's, it's quite a production. So I want let, to let's sit in this kind of um, in this pool for a little bit around. So you said this about 2015. You, you had this idea. Maybe you had a little bit before that. Were, so the company, when you pitched it to them, were you already working for the company or this was, hey, I want to come here and I want to do this? What? Tell me about the genesis of that a little bit. Yeah, the genesis was I, I did work for another company that was chasing this problem. And they had a certain solution for it that they were proposing. And um, I was part of that. So I was on a technology team at a company that was trying to address this for big retail brands. And long story short, we failed. What we built did not work well. It, um, I was, by the way, at that time, I was three years into it. So this started in 2012 for me, where I went to work for this company because, again, I was kind of in the photography space already. There was, I knew someone who knew someone who came to me and said, could you help us go market this technology tool we're building? I looked at what they were doing and I said, holy moly, I've never even imagined that something like this could exist. They, they were doing something very new, right? This whole idea of what I just talked about. They had built something kind of purpose built. I looked at it and I said, I, I want to, this is what I want to do. Like I kind of fell in love immediately with the idea of going and solving this. So I spent three years from 2012 to 2015 working with a solution, trying to actually deploy it to some of the biggest brands in the world, names that you would absolutely recommend, but I'm, I'm not going to share the specific names, but we, we were going after, you know, very big players in retail. We had a solution that demoed beautifully. People loved it. They loved the concept. They were like, nobody else is doing this. Great. Let's do this. We tried to deploy it. It wouldn't work. And I started to dig into why. And basically what I, what I've realized over my career, by the way, is the hat that I wear, no matter what my title is, the hat that I've been wearing all my life is a product manager hat. The way I look at problems is the way a product manager does, which is, you know, what do we have to do to change this? How could this product be better? How could this be positioned better? 
And so when I came to Dave Gallagher, who's the, the CEO at Capture Integration in 2015, it was out of desperation in part because I had spent three years already on the problem. I was completely addicted to the problem. I knew that there was a market for it, but we were failing in what we were doing. And I came to Dave to say, basically, Dave, you know, um, would you would you bring me on to solve this? Because the weird part was, so Dave was someone I knew, and and his company was also sort of, for lack of a better term, um, dancing with this problem a little bit. They were being asked by some big brands to solve this problem as well because they were they were building out these studios. By the way, Dave's company was selling the equipment that was going into these big studios, right? That these brands were using, but they were saying, oh, "Great, I've got all this equipment, I got all these people. How do I tie this together into a sort of a process?" And uh, they, they sold a piece of software called Capture One that was a big part of the workflow. And so I came to Dave um, to say, basically, should I come on board to help you with this and let's build a real solution out of it, knowing what I've learned from failure, which, by the way, is, is a key, of course, a key driver of any time you, you solve problems is typically because you, you failed at it enough. So that's kind of what the, the genesis of that was. And how did you negotiate like the terms and stuff? Because obviously, like I said, it's not like, hey, I'm going out raising money. Like this is my baby type thing. It's, you know, hey, company, I'm coming in. Was that like, hey, we're going to give you this title and this position and you go, you know, go in the back room and beat it, you know, kind of beat on the in the keys, if you will. Or what was the arrangement there that you guys worked out? It was it was one of those things where if you believe in fate or karma, this would be one of those things that sort of validates that belief in that I came to uh, the owner of a company that was seeing the market change dramatically. And of course, you guys, you guys know, just in the, uh, as anyone that has a, a smartphone knows if we, th if we talk about what we talked about before around where digital cameras were going, it's a company that sells very high end, very specialized digital cameras. You can see how that market is changing with smartphones in everybody's hands and, you know, things just moving upstream and the usual, you know, kind of, um, uh, cannibalism, right, of the higher end of the market, looking at where does their company go for the next 10 years. So there was a kind of a right point of conversation to say, should we diversify and pivot? I came in to essentially say, you know, we would need to build a team, we would need to find a crew. It turned out there was already somebody at that company working there um, that was kind of one of the world's gurus in what we would need to do to solve this problem. So the weird part was, I didn't know that. I came to the owner of the company and said, I'd like to build something. And he basically said, I've got the right guy and he already works for me. And it was just one of those weird things where, you know, we sat down for lunch and by the end of the lunch in April, 2015, it was, this ought to happen. Now I was still trying to figure out again, to your point, what that would look like. So it took a while to negotiate it. But I think the short version was that I, I was the product manager mind behind it. And there was a willingness to, fund a small team to go do a proof of concept and to figure out, you know, whether we could build a solution. And it really was a lot about, and I, I, I hate to even say this because for entrepreneurs that don't have a network, going back to your question about networking, maybe we're looping back to that, but I've been really good at networking throughout my career. I've had a lot of great contacts with great people. This was a case where if I was not able to go ask for lunch and sit down with this guy who's the CEO of this company and and have him know me and trust me as somebody who's been in the industry where we had kind of crossed paths many times, you know, knew each other, um, I wouldn't have had this opportunity. So it came out of me being able to say, 
do we trust each other enough to just try this thing and go chase it down, even though we don't know what that position is and the position's going to keep changing and the team's going to keep changing. It was just a, it was a drive to say, should we partner up? And in this particular case, there was enough trust and um, I don't know, goodwill between us that we sort of said, yeah, we'll put some stuff on paper. But to be honest, we didn't know what we were doing when it came to agreements really that much. We, we put some agreements together. They're, they're not, they're probably not, they're probably not great agreements. Nobody had a lawyer, but it was really more of a handshake thing to say, let's, let's go do this together. And that's been the last four years. So obviously you had to sell him internally on that. How, how was the conversations at home? How, how did you sell the family on going this route? Was that a, was that a bigger hurdle or was that easier? You know, I, as someone that has six kids, um, by the way, at the time that I was pitching this idea in 2015, I was three weeks away from having twins they were, my wife was pregnant with twins in her ninth month of pregnancy. Um, and we didn't start this. So this is when we started the conversation. I didn't actually join until September, which again is, is four years ago. But we're, I was basically, I had one, that uh, a child that was three. I had twins that were coming. And I was in a position financially because I also had a couple in college because uh, I have the other end of the spectrum. I, I wasn't able to do the typical you know, I'm not going to take a salary. Let's just do this on our own. Again, let's stand this thing up. Let's let's use our credit cards if we have to. I just wasn't in that position. And so I had to, thankfully, I was able to negotiate a salary and like actually, you know, salary and benefits, be an employee of the company. So there was some benefit there, again, in utilizing an existing company. Another way to think of it is you're, you're sort of pivoting an existing company into a new business, but you're leveraging all the things that they already have in place, right? Which was a cash flow and a, a structure where they were willing to fund doing this with myself and others as paid employees, as opposed to everybody just running into this and not taking a salary. So I didn't have to sell it too hard at home because I was able to say, like, I'm going to be able to actually get a salary out of this. I'm going to be able to kind of survive financially because really, again, I had no real option. But the interesting thing about that is to be to be blunt is I also traded a lack of equity for that. Right. Which, you know, some people are willing to do and some people aren't willing to do. What was interesting from my perspective was, again, I was I was so addicted to this problem that. I was almost willing to do anything to solve it. Like it, it really was a mission where this seemed to be the best way to go about it. And I was pretty willing to make compromises. And thankfully, you know, I have a supportive, you know, wife and family that were like, well, you know, as long as you're bringing home a paycheck, I guess you can go chase this crazy dream. Right. Um, that's kind of, that kind of how, that's kind of how it went. And my wife's still a little incredulous that, you know, this is quote unquote, even after four years, even after some of the clients, by the way, that I've mentioned, that are our clients, you know, we work with some of the biggest brands in the world. We're still not scaled the way we'd like to be. You're always struggling with business to business and how long it takes to get, uh, you know, things going and, and scale the business that even four years in, you're still a little like, man, I don't know. Is this, is this still going to last? Is it, you know, are we going to just get knocked out of the park by some competitor? There's always those fears. So even now, you know, you, you say like, was this a good bet? I didn't really have much choice, Brian, because like I said, I, I I couldn't get up in the morning without thinking about this problem. So it was a classic case of all the rest of it were just how we managed to, to wrap around some means to do it. So in the last four years, and, and maybe there's two or three you can share, 
you you learned a lot i'm assuming right there's a there's a lot of ups and downs and of the process are there two or three that you might share for the folks out there that are looking to start their own business or grow a product or maybe have just early on in the process that could help them to maybe avoid some of those those pitfalls that you guys went through in the last four years anything you'd share you know, I would say there's probably nothing new under the sun that I would share, although that doesn't mean that everybody else, you know, has kind of tapped into the resources that are out there. What I will say, very similar to our conversation talking about how different business was 25 years ago when I was in sales and marketing versus now, if you're talking about trying to create something new, again, whether it's a company or whether it's a product or whether it's even just, again, convincing your company Hey, let's go in a new direction. I've got this great idea. We could go we could go create something new without necessarily standing up, you know, a new organization. In all those cases there's so many amazing resources out there. The the lean startup model which has become kind of so ubiquitous and and everybody talks about it. The reason that everybody talks lean startup is that when you look at that model, it just works. The whole idea of building an MVP of validating that with actual customers, of sort of proving your, your business case. And by the way, learning and iterating all the way through, you're just never going to get it right out of the gate. Again, if it's, if it's anything worth doing that you're not just chasing somebody else. Again, the difference here is we're not going after something where there's 20 people already in it. We're just trying to say, how can we differentiate it? We're talking about you know, really trying to do something new that, that fairly unprecedented. You're going to get it wrong. And, is, and you have to be able to build an iterative process where you can get it wrong and just move really fast to adapt. And, and adapting means listening to customers, of course, but also it's, it's the classic Steve Jobs thing. And you, you can't do this conversation, by the way, without talking about Steve Jobs, because again, a cliche, nobody got product management like Steve Jobs did. Um, ultimately, you know, he's just so far beyond anyone else that he comes up because he knew how to take input from that potential customer, but he also knew how to build something that no one, no customer would have ever designed. No one would have ever said, this iPhone thing is exactly what ought to be made. He, he built something that nobody knew they wanted, but he could take the inputs, what we call the business requirements, right? I need to be able to go anywhere and make calls to anyone. I need to be able to be contacted anywhere. I need to be able to, to check my stocks. I need to be able to do this and all those needs. And he was able to kind of manifest a product out of it. The point being all that, there's a lot of failure there in, in, any, in any environment. It's about iterating fast. It's about finding uh, the first few customers that you can sanity check this with and listening to them. And again, finding that balance between, you can't literally take every single thing that comes out of their mouth and sort of use it to design a product, but you always need to take their feedback and understand it and process it and, and put it in context. So, you know, all this stuff again is not new. There's incredible books. There's people like Guy Kawasaki out there. Again, there's the Lean Startup guys. There's many, many books about this now from a lot of the people that, that started great companies. There's so many resources. And a lot of them have it right in that, um, you know, I, I think, I just think there's a tremendous amount of good information out there today. And, and I, I look at our story and I just say, I don't think it's really different than anybody else's story. It's different to us because we hadn't lived through it before, but every single thing you read about in these books, I'm like, oh, yep, that happened. Yep, that happened. It's, it's really fascinating because it's been done a lot. I love that you brought up Steve. Yeah, he... There's a great quote he has, and it's in a, there's a video on YouTube. I think it's like, a, it's called like the, um, 
I can't remember now. It's something about like he's he's responding to some criticism. Um, I can't remember the exact name. I'll post in the show notes. But the uh, but basically, he says exactly what you said. Is you know, we, you start with the customer experience first and work back toward the product. You can't have it the other way around. And I think that's the other that's the way to go. You got to listen and then you retool it. You don't just you know bang out in the back, engineer something, and then say, hey, here's what we did because that's where I think 40 features come in that maybe aren't even necessary, right? Because everyone's Absolutely. only using 10 to 20% of the product most likely uh, that you build anyway. So how do you make it simplified and, and work for the right people? Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, there, there's so many great ones around this. And, and again, Jobs isn't the only person, but just, just the one that we all see and know and has so many great, Jobs has so much great content because he was interviewed for 30 years doing this. But the other one is you fall in love with the market problem, not your solution. Uh, and that's a big part of the lean startup thing. It's saying that, you know, again, if you become that inventor mindset and you think that in your garage, you've built this perfect thing and all you want to hear from the world is how perfect it is. That's a really good uh, recipe for failure, right? The flip side is, you know, again, you, you recognize this need and you relentlessly learn about the needs and yeah, and then you back into the product. That's been our experience. We're still, we're still backing into the product, meaning we had an MVP out for the last two and a half years or so. Um, today I look at it and I say, oh my gosh, there's so many things wrong with that. And yet at the time it was better than anything else in the commercial market that was available. So we got, um, you know, for example, the largest denim uh, brand in the world whose name I won't recommend, I won't say, but everyone's going to know who I'm talking about to, to come in as a beta tester and test it live in their actual studios uh, because there wasn't anything else out there. And again, it taught us a lot. Now we're iterating to sort of our second generation, which now we're going to look at and say, oh, this is amazing and it's perfect. And again, five years ago, we're, we're going to look back on it and say, yeah, that was, that was primitive. But as long as you're focused on the market problem, that's going to keep happening and that's perfectly okay. That's how you get there. So what are some that you mentioned, you know, obviously these iterations the last few years, what are you guys excited about the next six months, year, two years that that's not under lock and key that you can share? Sure. Um, well, we are, we are migrating from, let's call it our MVP or you could call it our 1.0. Uh, in our case, we're, we're a software as a service platform. So by the way, as a hack, we came to market with a tiny team of people because we didn't, we're not VC funded. We didn't have private equity money behind us. We basically were self-funded out of a very small company. We went to market instead of building a product from scratch, we piggybacked on top of commercial services that are already out there, which is very popular right now because there are many, many services that exist that you can basically build on, not just an AWS. In our case, we built on top of, of something called QuickBase, which is a database platform in the cloud that lets you do all kinds of stuff without building an entire infrastructure behind it. So we had sat our first product on top of someone else's infrastructure, technology, architecture, you know, built that, that minimum viable. Now we're in the midst of migrating all of our clients to our homegrown built from scratch platform over the next six months. So that's a huge thing for us because it's been two years in the making. It takes a ton of what we learned over the last four years and, and dumps it all into this new thing. It's, it's addressing a huge set of wish list items. And then it also allows us to then take that and now we own the platform top to bottom, back to front. We're able to build it from there as opposed to being limited by you know the limitations of a quick to market strategy. But we would have never known what we know now if we hadn't got to market fast enough on that imperfect 
solution to get there. So it, it's just iterating. You know, I think we see ourselves growing to the point where we may well kind of split off into our own company. That's something we've talked about too, is do we need to be a separate company from our parent? You know, that's a conversation we've had because as we grow, the two companies are sort of diverging uh, and becoming more like two companies, even though we're all under the same, you know, kind of uh, corporate structure. That kind of growth, those are the great problems to have if you're growing and you're thinking about how best to serve a market, you know, and, and how best to kind of um, structure your company. We have that benefit that we didn't, again, build a company day one. We waited to sort of catch up and say, now if we need a company because we now have enough scale, now we can build the company we want, right? So those kind of conversations are all ongoing, nothing you know, firm um, in terms of the corporate side. But we are, you know, we're rapidly moving to that kind of 2.0 generation, and uh, we're excited to have, you know, brands that, that again, you guys, you, you walk down the street or walk down a mall and see every day. It's it's a weird experience to have them on board as partners. And by the way, I use that term partner very, very carefully. If you do this right, your your clients, your first customers are your partners, and and think of it as they're your investors. Uh, this is a quote I steal from someone else. I can't come up with his name right off the top of my head. Uh, actually, I know who it is. It's the um, the CEO of Reich. I don't know if you if you know Reich at all. You, you probably do, Brian, from yeah, maybe from Reich. I, We, we so, went to battle against them a lot when yeah. I was in motion now. So Reich, Reich has done very, very well as a task management, project management tool. Um, their CEO has a fantastic talk. Again, we might be able to find a link for it that um, I think it's on uh, Saster um, on, on that site. But anyway, talks through what did he learn um, self-funding a company for a decade. And he said, your, your customers are your investors. In, in that case, the people that are spending money, if you're not backed by, again, VC, private equity, something else, your customers that spend money on the platform are your investors. And we really look at our customers as, as our partners and our investors. And you know, to have these kind of big brands that we'd all recognize saying, we're on board, we're with you, we're doing this together. It's not a classic vendor, you know, supplier, customer relationship. We are partnering to solve problems that are hugely important to them and that they've never found a partner that can solve for them. You know, there's nothing better than that, right? That's the dream. But you get there by falling in love with the problem. Again, not falling in love with working with client A, B, or C because they're cool clients, right? You fall in love with a problem that they have. And you and you chase it relentlessly, and they they pick up on your passion, and they say, "Yep, you're the guy." So again, they're not really buying a platform in a way from us, or of course, renting it if you're a software as a service. What they've decided is, we're the right guys with the right vision that that can partner for them over the next five to ten years. And so we're we're in a it's a dream state to be honest. Like I I couldn't imagine getting up and doing anything else every day, and the privilege of being able to do that with the the smart people I work with and building this team doesn't really compare with anything else I've done in my career. It does feel like it was all a preparation for this though. And if, if folks want to connect with you or the company, how do they get in touch? What's the best way? Oh, certainly they can go to shopflow.com, which is the, the company site. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it should be very easy to find. There's not too many Eric Fulmers. Um, and of course you can put my contact information if you'd like um, on your podcast. But uh, you know, I, I, I think the lesson for us is um we, we want to be that company you've probably never heard of, you know, like most of the, your podcast listeners are probably like, well, I don't happen to be a top 100 apparel brand in the United States that has this problem, but interesting. 
I think to me, the, um, the value of, of somebody like myself, and I've begun to do a little bit of product management mentoring. Here in Atlanta, we have a group called Product 404. 404 is the area code, the old area code of Atlanta. Um, that group was formed by other people that I've joined, but they're trying to get product managers to mentor other product managers and to help guide them along. And I'm becoming part of that. So my, my thing now is to understand that I went through 20 years in business without realizing in some ways that a product manager was what I really was. And that's how I was wired because you don't get taught in school. Like, Hey, do you want to be a product manager? Let's talk about what being a product manager is. Right? So I think what I really want to work on is trying to help other people recognize and appreciate what product management is and, and where they can go and how to build out their own product management journey. Right? So uh, anyone that's interested in that, I'd, I'd love to connect. That's awesome. I always like to end on this. This is more of an open forum. Um, you kind of take it as you want. It's, I really like you to condense your, it's basically your whole professional career into like one or two sentences. <laughs> is there one piece of advice? Maybe it's a quote you live by something that, and it could be more of on a personal level too, that you would kind of, you know, tell everyone, the listener say, Hey, just something to keep in mind that's been helpful for you maybe to go through all these different journeys, all the different ups and downs kind of, again, as you go through product launches and those type of things, anything that's kept you um, kind of level-headed, I guess, if you will, um, as you mm. go forward. Oh boy, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I would say the, the journey that I've been on was in part, I was always hungry. I was always looking for more. So I've, I've left more jobs. I think, I've, I think I was actually fired once and I was set to be laid off another time, but I got another job before I was laid off. But all the changes I've made, and I've worked for a lot of companies, I was always willing to try something different, including leaving a company and going somewhere else. Because I will say that, that the one thing in my life that's true in my professional life and my personal life is I've never been at all motivated by fear. And, and I don't say that as trying to, to, to say that, that that's an accomplishment for me, meaning it doesn't, it doesn't mean I've solved a problem other people haven't, or that I'm, you know, I've, I've gone through some magical transformation to do it. I just happen to be someone that is not wired to worry about things. I don't have anxiety. And I will tell you that seeing how many people struggle with anxiety and, and, and that kind of situation where, where it's just a, a constant for them. I can't imagine it, but I begin to imagine what it would be like to be in fear of changing and trying something new. I, I don't experience it. I know for sure it's been a big part of why I ended up where I am today. Um, and, and I guess I would just say, if you struggle with anxiety or if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with the whole what if of things, um, you know, find, find ways as best you can to, to fight against it. Because I really, truly cannot imagine that when you hear these surveys, people are unhappy, you know, some huge percentage of people are unhappy with their work and they won't leave. And I, I know in a lot of cases, it's, they're just not, they're just not willing to take a chance. Again, I'm not saying necessarily go out and, you know, again, run up your credit card to start a company in your basement. Maybe that's your, your, maybe that's your journey. But what I found was I learned something every time I changed jobs or companies, every time I tried something new. And again, looking back now, everything that I learned has now fed into what I'm doing today. But I wouldn't have done all those different things if I stayed because I was afraid to, to, to just look around and, and try the next thing and see what, you know, what, where it led me. 
Thanks for sharing that, Eric. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I'll just make one last note because I actually, I do these one mic sessions every once in a while. And it's funny you mentioned that. I, I just launched one, whatever, a week or two ago called the Toolbox of Knowledge. And it's basically this idea I've had for a few years around like you carry around these toolboxes. And as you go to these experiences, what are you doing to research, to use the people that are there and not use in a bad way, but like leverage that? Um, network, those type of things to gain more knowledge for your next journey, whatever that is. And to your point, maybe that helps people overcome some of that fear because they feel more prepared, right? They have more experience um, because they've actually done something than just kind of punch the clock every day. So it, it's kind of in line with what you said. I appreciate you kind of sharing that. And, you know, th again, that's awesome. It, it, you have a unique journey, which is really cool. Um, and that's what I like to kind of showcase in the podcast. Everyone's different. But the whole goal is, again, getting to that fulfillment where you're happy, where you're solving problems, where you're enjoying waking up every day. And, um, and that's really neat for you to share that on the, on the podcast today. So thanks so much for being on and, uh, and sharing that journey. Absolutely, Brian. And uh, I, I love the podcast. I love what you're doing. I, I really appreciate, again, that you went out and started something and said, let's, let's go build this. And, um, you know, I, I feel like in that way, uh, it's been really great to reconnect with you. Again, we both have journeyed around and, and done a lot of different things. But um, to connect again on the on this subject of, um, you know, how do you get started, right? Starting is always so hard, but um, it'll come to you when the right, you know, to me, the passion will be there. When you find something you you can't stop thinking about, you know, go go find a way to, to attack it, right? Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview and look forward to having you for the next one. And if you are getting value out of this podcast, please head over to iTunes, leave me a quick review, let me know how I'm doing. It's the only way I'm going to be able to make this podcast better each and every episode. And go connect with me online at Brian Andreco on Instagram or Twitter, or head over to my website, BrianAndreco.com, where I house the podcasts, you know, my CrossFit journey, a ton of blog articles. I even have a now page to kind of keep people up to speed on the last couple months. Um, at worst, it gives my mom peace of mind to keep tabs on me and know that I'm doing okay. So I hope you guys continue to do great. Um, I look forward to having you on another episode and keeping connected online. Take care, have a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon.